0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, April 13th. We begin with a conversation with Marcy Ian, Liberal MP and Minister for Women and Gender Equality and Youth, who is in Calgary for a series of announcements on affordable housing. Minister Ian gives us details on the Liberal plan, which was laid out in the 2022 federal budget.
1: Next, we look at Canada's investment on green technology, in particular if the current program will be enough to meet our 2050 emissions goals. We discuss with Ross McKittrick, Professor of Economics from the University of Guelph, and Senior Fellow with the Fraser Institute.
0: Still on the topic of emissions, we hear about the latest tech being used to capture atmospheric carbon, which was invented right here in Alberta. We get details on the process from Amy Tai, Professor in the Faculty of Engineering from the University of Alberta.
1: And finally, it's our monthly visit with Dr. Axel Morenschlager, Director of Conservation and Science from the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo. This time out, Dr. Morenschlager brings us details on how Calgary frogs are hopping into action to help urban frogs around the world. A couple of important announcements being made in Calgary today with Liberal MP and Minister for Women and Gender Equality and Youth, Marcy Ian in town. Joining us now is the Honourable Marcy Ian. Thank you for being with us, Minister. Appreciate it it's so good to be with you sue and andy
2: thanks for having me
1: thanks for joining us uh let's see you're in calgary today you're making a couple of big announcements on affordable housing what can you tell us about what was promised in the budget and what is now coming for our city
2: so sue you know we first and foremost have really really had a hard time it's been extremely hard for everyone during this pandemic so we really wanted to identify where we could help people and that's what this budget is about having said that you know you'll often hear you know people say that we bounced back and we have quite well we've recovered 112 112 percent of jobs uh, since April 2020 and our employment uh rate is 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 pretty solid right now But you throw those numbers out, Sue, and there are a lot of people who don't feel it. They say, that's great, that's good, but we're not feeling this kind of economic success. And that's because there really isn't a silver bullet. I wish there was, but there isn't to these issues. But housing is at the heart of it. And so what we're identifying is how to get people housed, how to provide Um, more affordable housing. And so you're right. I am in town uh, to make some announcements today. One of them, Sue, will be at the YWCA Calgary that does outstanding, outstanding work. I mean, the fact of the matter is, we told people during this pandemic to stay home. And home was not a safe place for everyone. So places like the YWCA had the programming, had the transitional housing, where women could go and and feel safe. Shout out to Sue Tomney and her team who were very, very much on the front lines and continue to be on the front lines. They do amazing work for women in this city. And they are also um, working on projects to build affordable housing. So I will be visiting one of those sites. And I will say in our rapid housing initiative, 25% of the projects in our rapid housing initiative are geared towards women.
0: Wow, incredible! It's it, it's a shame that it has to be focused that way, Minister. But that's the way it is.
2: I know, I know, Andy. It really is. But you really, this is what we're trying to pinpoint where where the need is. And I will say that you know um, we did this knowing in a pandemic context how disproportionately impacted women are, mm-hmm. and and then you put a racialized lens and an indigenous lens on that. And then the numbers go up exponentially.
0: Your view is nationwide, Minister and You see every community, every major city in the country. I'm wondering, compared to the other major cities, how does Calgary compare? Or are you seeing a very similar setup when it comes to that affordable housing need?
2: Oh, it is a theme right across, right across the country. And when we look at it, supply is really an issue here. So it's housing construction that we're focusing on, uh, and over the next decade, we're going to invest $4 billion for the launch of a new housing accelerator fund to create that supply, to create 100,000 new housing units over the next five years across the country. So, so that will help. And then, you know, I, I represent Toronto Centre, but in my riding, I hear from a lot of um, young people, young couples, struggling to buy their first home. The situation is the same here in Calgary, and we're going to help. We're going to introduce a tax-free first home savings account, and what that will do, it'll allow first-time home buyers to save up to 40000 and we're going to also double the first-time home homebuyer's tax credit to 10000 It's trying to find direct ways to help people, because I have to tell you, um, it wasn't too long ago that I was in a by-election and then a general. I had two elections inside of a year, and the number one thing, to Andy, that I heard at the doors was affordable housing, mm-hmm. and so we're really trying to tackle that. Okay, so
1: affordable housing, and you mentioned five to ten years for these projects. Is is there anything being done now that we can really sort of count on that we'll be able to sink our teeth into here in the city oh, absolutely. of Calgary?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Rapid housing initiatives, and they are happening across Alberta. And as I say, I'll be I'll be uh, at one today. And what that means to the rapid housing part is quick. So within a year, if these places can, can be built, the affordable housing can happen. I've got several in my own riding, too, riding across the country where people can see these things being built. And that's the initiative where there's that carve-out for women, that 25% carve-out. A lot of the times these are also buildings that are, that are um, you know, already standing. So whether it's um, older buildings that are then renovated and reconstructed. Uh, in my riding, it's a couple of, of restaurants uh, and some rental space that has been turned into affordable housing. But it's just, it just speaks to the creativity here. You know, it's taking what's already there and reconstructing or, or finding properties where things can be built quickly. And a shout-out to, to my colleague and fellow Cabinet Minister Ahmed Hussein. Uh, who has really, really driven this and doing an incredible job with regards to getting housing built across this
0: country. With with such ambitious projects, not just in the city, but many communities, as you've detailed, Minister Ian, across Canada, I'm wondering you know, how closely you're going to be having to work with the Ministry of Infrastructure, because not just funneling money toward the supplies, but we have to have enough workers. Is this something that's mm-hmm. in the conversation as far as the education piece? Perhaps the training absolutely, new workers.
2: Absolutely, Andy, and such an important question. And it really is a whole of government approach. This doesn't happen unless you have all ministries at the table, all of government at the table. And it is. It absolutely is. So yes, uh, this is this is something that we're all working on, uh, including Minister LeBlanc, as I mentioned, Minister Hussain, uh, you know, um, Minister Freeland. All of us, we're all working towards that goal because you're absolutely right. You can't have one without the other.
1: We know we need affordable housing. We know we need the jobs. A lot of people, if we just, you know, kind of step back and look at budget 2022, uh, critics say too much spending. A lot of Canadians say, you know, the, de- the deficit getting out of control. Is it all necessary, Minister?
2: It, it's necessary, and I think there's a good fiscal anchor here. I think that it is the kind of budget that addresses what Canadians need. Uh, From my perspective, my portfolio, um, I got what I needed to put forward a national action plan on gender-based violence. Why is that important? Because we saw intimate partner violence skyrocket during this pandemic. It really put things in the fore. We understood where the gaps were. And so, you know, you you spend where you see the need, but make sure that there's a fiscal anchor. And I think that Minister Freeland and her team have done an excellent job at doing that, identifying how we can grow and how we can do so in a fiscally responsible way. So whether that's, you know, the green transition that isn't just happening here in Canada, but around the world, and we very much want to be a part of that vanguard, or whether it's building affordable housing, or whether it's providing safe places for people fleeing violence, and not just providing safe places, but making sure that people can flourish, giving them the wraparound services. All these things, um, you know, I I, I like to say that we have learned some lessons in this pandemic. We've seen where the need is, who has been disproportionately impacted, And it's now our responsibility to act and fill those gaps and make sure that we're helping people in the way that they need
0: minister thanks so much for your time this morning we appreciate it
2: so good to talk to you have a great one soon andy and i will add this one other announcement it's a transit announcement happening in a couple hours at 11 uh, a.m and i'll be joining mayor gondek and mp George hall and the premier uh, we're, you know, it's one of those cases where all levels of government have come together, and I think that's what Canadians want to see.
0: Good stuff. We'll keep our eyes peeled for that as well. Take care. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. That is Liberal MP and Minister for Women and Gender Equality and Youth. Marcy Ian.
1: And the 2022 federal budget commits $1, uh, $12.5 billion to reach emissions targets. And with some insight on how realistic this target is, we're joined this morning by Ross McKittrick, Professor of Economics at the University of Guelph and Senior Fellow with the Fraser Institute. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for joining us.
3: Good morning. My pleasure.
1: Okay, so Ross, do you believe Canada's emissions reduction plan and the federal government's investment in green technology is realistic in order to meet that net zero goal? Is it just realistic overall?
3: Well, I think there are two aspects to it that make it unrealistic. The first is is the amount of money involved um, for a government that accumulated so much debt during the COVID crisis. Um, and we're looking at a period of higher interest rates. Um, there's going to be pressure on every government's budget, but especially in Ottawa, they're not in a position to find $100 billion a year of, of extra money to put into anything right now. And um, so it's 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 unrealistic for them not to be thinking about how they're going to deal with, with paying back all this borrowed money. But the other part of it is just the idea that the government throwing money at a sector will cause the sector to come into existence and, and thrive it's never happened before and all my life i've been hearing governments say we need to have a high-tech sector we need to have movie sector we need to have this and that and they'll throw money at it and unless the private sector is interested unless it's profitable and uh it's something that attracts investors anyway it doesn't just happen because government throws money at it Mm -hmm. and that's what i'm seeing here if you ignore the fact that it's called the green technology sector and you just think of it as government wants a new sector of the economy. That's just not how sectors appear.
0: I want to ask you this, Ross. You recently called Ottawa's emissions plan, quote, Canada's gift to Putin. Can you explain that statement to us?
3: Yeah, the, uh, uh, the big thing right now that everyone in the world is talking about is how to rearrange energy transactions so that Europe and other Western countries aren't dependent on Russia. And they are in a panic right now trying to find new sources of natural gas and oil and the US is gearing up their export capacity Canada's moving in the other direction. We are not um, uh, putting our substantial energy res- resources available for uh, for Europe and or for the United States. Um, it's a gift to Putin because he's counting on Europe continuing to be absolutely dependent especially on natural gas exports. And uh, the only way around that is for countries like Canada to have the export capacity and um, to be able to tell the the Europeans, you don't need to buy from Putin anymore, we'll we'll fill the supply gap. Mm -hmm. And we're doing the opposite. We are telling the world we're going to withdraw from those markets
1: you know, even just to step back even again to the, the money side of things that we were talking about, you know, I'm just looking at some details from a, a global article saying Canada would need between 125 and $140 billion of investment every year to reach that net zero by 2050. And annual investments right now in the climate transition between 15 and $25 billion. So, I mean, that gap is, is almost unreachable.
3: Well, that tells you that um, the kinds of uh, technology... We're talking about it's not profitable for the private sector. It's not stuff people would ordinary, ordinarily invest in. Um, things like we've had very unhappy experience in Ontario with renewable energy, with wind and solar. It, it ended up costing far more than we were told it would, and had a, a very um, negative effect on electricity prices. It, it forced them up about double, and um, and it also isn't very productive, so the private sector looks at those kinds of numbers and says, well, we're not going to invest in these kinds of options. I mean, some people will buy electric cars because they like them, but at this point they are much more expensive than ordinary gas powered cars and not, not actually all that much cleaner anyway. So um, people aren't putting their money into these technologies because they don't make sense economically. So then if you, are going to try to say, well, let's do it anyway, and we'll just have the government foot the bill for everything. That's where it becomes completely unrealistic. It, it doesn't matter if they're saying $100 billion or $200 billion, nothing would be enough for what they're proposing to do.
0: Well, when we go with $100 billion, Ross, I'm wondering that cost and that forecast to hit that target, do we know how that compares to, to other nations uh, trying to reach a similar goal? Is it a higher price tag or about the same?
3: Uh, It's a difficult comparison to make because no country has really done it. Um, I mean, other countries are putting money into these things, but they're all running into the same obstacles. Britain has gone far uh, down the road of trying to become dependent on renewables. They have a very large fleet of wind energy and solar energy, and they're still getting somewhere around 4 or 5 percent of their electricity from all that infrastructure. So there aren't any great success stories out there that we can look at and copy. Um, It's, uh, again, it's something that other countries occasionally they've they've tried, but at this point actually Europe is is moving back into fossil energy and Germany's restarting coal-fired power plants and it's because they need the energy and, and at the end of the day they go to what's reliable and what's affordable.
1: What are your thoughts on uh, nuclear power? Because we know in the federal budget, uh, the Prime Minister saying nuclear power is on the table.
3: Well, um, if we're going to substantially change the electricity system over to something that is reliable and is non-emitting, nuclear is really the only option that we have. Um, we have lots of experience with nuclear in Ontario. Uh, we have... Um, uh, Several, I think we have three operating currently. So they do work, but they are extremely expensive. And so to me, the, the big technology question is, is it possible in this day and age to build nuclear plants that don't go way over budget, don't um, saddle us with a lot of debt? If that puzzle can be solved, then suddenly a lot of things are realistic that um, at this point don't look realistic if everybody just wants to talk about wind and solar.
0: Ross, thank you for your insight and thank you for your time this morning. We appreciate it.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: That is Ross McKittrick, professor of economics, University of Guelph and senior fellow with the Fraser Institute.
1: Text from Bill saying, your guest makes a great point. The governments of Canada can't even oversee the cannabis sector
0: profitability.
1: And how much demand is there for that?
0: Uh, yeah, I've always said, you know, a little less government yeah. would be, uh, you know, a little you, more productive.
1: You on. actually do say that I say quite that. often.
0: New research from the University of Alberta is working to improve how carbon dioxide is stored and absorbed when it's pumped underground. With details on improvements to carbon capture and storage, we're joined by Amy Tai, professor in the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Alberta. Good morning to you, Amy.
4: Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. Now, listen, um, carbon capture and storage, I think we've all heard of it. Uh, But I'm wondering, when we talk about carbon capture, how would you define it for the average person out there?
4: Oh, yeah. The key idea is we collect uh, carbon dioxide uh, from a power plant, a concentrated source, and then we collect them, transport them uh, to underground and store it underground.
1: How do you store it, Amy? How is it stored underground?
4: Yeah, so it's Kind of like the reverse process that we would uh, pop out the oil right and we will have natural formation or order the oil and we just just pull through pipeline of the co2 and then go into the pipes and to the underground and it it depends on the situation it can be beneficial for oil more oil recovery, so we can inject it into depleted oil field or we can actually inject it into what we call Saline aquifer. Uh, it's a natural formation with salty water in there. Uh, and it has uh, most uh, capacity in the world, uh, Saline aquifer. So that's why people are interested in. It. And actually we have a cut project in Northern Alberta. Uh, have been uh, deployed as DCF, uh carbon capture sequestration projects, uh, since 2016.
0: Okay, here's a, a layperson's question for you, Amy. When the carbon dioxide is in the ground, how long does it stay there? What happens to it? And is there a lifetime that it is and remains underground?
4: Uh, yes. So... The, so when we pump the CO2 on under, uh, underground, ground, uh, it will have several food dynamic processes. Uh, and it, first, it will, it will rise because it's, it's lighter. Uh, but eventually, what we are looking for is it will have chemical reaction with the brine, and the CO2 eventually become part of the Uh, carbonized uh, and terminally stored on the ground. Uh, But this is a very low process. Uh, So that's why we're interested in knowing the entire process and through uh, microscopic and high-speed image uh, to look at uh, what's happening,
1: uh, detailing. So, Amy, tell us about your research specifically then. What's different about it? How is it helping the industry better understand how CO2 is absorbed?
4: Right. So we have a clear visualization at a small scale. And so imagine we cannot really look into the rock pores, but we what we do is the fabricate most structure of the pipe and channel and look at how the CO2 interact with the background fluids such as brine and oil, and then even tap tap into the chemical reaction. And because we have fabricated something very tiny, like It's called a microfluidics, and uh, that is like your hair length of about 100 microns, like the thickness of of one of your hair. Uh, And we can really tap into it and see the close, very clear visualization how CO2 is transported and how it interacts with the background fluid, and then estimate it's the right uh, time scales, how fast. Uh, all this process, important process, of
0: what takes place. Amy, thank you so much for your time this morning and the conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Amy Tai, professor in the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Alberta. Still, I have some questions. <laughs> yeah. I still have some questions, too. I'm not sure about you, but it's, yep. it's, it's, it's very in-depth. I'm glad that those folks like Amy know what they're doing. Because this whole carbon capture thing has my head spinning. And it, it, it does get down to I know a science, I've, I've, I've got a degree in science. Uh, I know about I do science. Not. I know that you, you don't have to see everything to know it's there, but to store something that we can't physically see. And, you know, to know the quantities of something that's invisible it's it's incredible.
1: I have so much respect for people who are as smart as Amy and and come up with these creative new things that it really can change an industry that's been around for a long time.
0: Absolutely. Changing it and uh, doing the right thing. And maybe for the better, for sure. Yeah. And because it's such a new technology, because it's something that's needed across the globe, maybe we can be world leaders. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Get on board with that. Yeah. Well, once a month, we have the pleasure of joining the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science, Dr. Axel Morenschlager, to discuss all the great conservation work that the team is involved with, not only in our city, but across the globe. We say good morning once again to Dr. Axel. Good morning. Well, we've got to hop right to it (laughs) and talk about a Calgary connection uh, and the frogs of Calgary. Uh, Tell us about this.
5: Yeah, that's right. I mean, first of all, a quiz for you. What type of animal said in the children's show that it's not easy being green?
0: Oh, come
1: Kermit. On. Yeah.
5: Ker- yes, exactly. Kermit the, the frog. Best frog of all, right? Yeah,
1: of course.
5: And here's another one, though. What animals did miners used to take into coal mines to alert them of poisonous gases? Canaries. A
0: canary in a coal mine. Oh, very good.
5: very good. The canary in the coal mine. So, um, So, yeah, amphibians are often thought of as canaries in the coal mine for... For us in terms of like being environmental indicators they depend on good conditions on land and in the water and so if frogs are doing well that's a good sign for us if they're not doing so well it's a little worrying and maybe we can address it one place that's not easy to be in for a frog is a city and uh that's and fair. so Yeah, and the same is is true here, and you can imagine why, right? I mean, we have big development pressures in cities, there's competing land uses, and sometimes we just don't even know what's going on in terms of, like, where amphibians are, you know, what what types there are, and what kinds of habitats that they need to breed. So what's really amazing is that a really um, visionary team uh, led from Calgary, has taken on this issue looking at our city but in a way to develop a framework for cities um, around the world. Uh, it's led by Tracy Lee of Mount Royal uh, University's Mistakas Institute and it's together with Avian Ecological Consulting University of Toronto and actually the city of Calgary itself as well as the Institute and Calgary Zoo through, through Leah Randall primarily in our group. And what it's looking at is it basically asks the question, hey, where are the amphibians here? What are they? And how can we you know, do our best to bring them back in balance with the needs that we have, right?
1: And then not run them over if they leave well, and you know, that sort of thing.
5: That's right, exactly. And running, <laughs> running frogs over or the road network is one of the main things, actually, to think about or to worry about. If you're a little frog, that needs to get from one wetland to another, for instance, between where you live at some point in the year and where you want to go to breed at another point in the year that's a real problem, right? Um, and one of the things is that that uh, in a publication that we just published as a, as a collective team, it was found that actually over 90% of wetlands that used to be in Calgary have now been lost. Um, good news is that on the edges of the city, primarily, there's about 2,700 left. And, and within those, there were uh, uh, surveys done not just on the edge but within the city too. And what's neat about it is that it's a collaboration between ecologists and city planners and citizens of Calgary themselves who actually participated, for instance, doing call surveys. So one of the things that frogs do, of course, is they ribbit, right? (laughs) They call. And so you can play them a sound at the right time of year and they'll call back. And this way you can find them or you can use visual surveys. So what the team found is that there's three amphibians left, uh, which are the, the wood frogs, boreal chorus frogs, and tiger salamanders. There used to be actually be six, but there's still three left, and they're they're doing okay on the edges of the city. What is so neat is that the team developed an eight-step process by which you can work with citizens in the city to try and bring amphibians back in a way that works for the city and us as citizens as well. And um, and what it found is that. It basically used really fancy science to develop connectivity corridors and habitat assessments to see where and how we can best bring them back. What it found is in many cases, the amphibians can get to where they need to get to. In some cases, there's actually habitat in the middle of the city um, that would be good for frogs, but they can't get there. And in those cases, we could use conservation translocations, for instance, to bring them back again. Right. And if you think about it, this is the kind of trend that you would have cities all around the world. And so by being able to develop this, looking at our own city with our own planners, with our own, you know, citizens, we're making a formula or a process that can be applied anywhere around the world.
1: You and your team do fascinating work, Axel. We love hearing your stories, and we thank you for joining us once again this morning to talk about the frogs and how important our frogs are and will be around the world. Thank you very much for your time.
5: Thank you, and thank you for supporting wildlife
0: conservation.
1: Always. Dr. Axel Morenschlager with the Wilder Institute Calgary Zoo. He is the Director of Conservation and Science. We call him the Nature Doctor.
0: So do you think sometimes we you know, kind of lose sight of the fact I mean, maybe this is our upbringing. And in my opinion, I'm not, we'd have to ask Dr. Mornschlager this as far as the history behind it. It was the zoo. It was, you know, to get a snack and check out the animals. But the evolution of the zoo. Oh, yeah. You have to look at this is not your granddaddy's zoo uh, in the sense that they do so much. And it's beyond. I was shocked in my first, well, initial meetings and conversations with Dr. Mornschlager that the Calgary Calgary can make a difference and he and his team at the zoo.
1: So so much, around the world literally around the world and that's why now they're called the Wilder Institute yes. Calgary Zoo. I really highly recommend you go to wilderinstitute.org and find out more about that conservation side of things because the folks at the Calgary Zoo are world renowned for the work that they're doing it, with frogs and and well beyond that.
0: It's impressive, it's amazing yeah. and it's uh, something worth it looking into for sure. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. <laughs>